Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, November 30th. We now have the most significant convictions yet related to the January 6th riot, right? Two leaders of the Oath Keepers right-wing militia group, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, were convicted yesterday of seditious conspiracy. What is that? Well, quoting from the law itself, have you ever read the actual U.S. Code on seditious conspiracy? I did this morning. It says seditious conspiracy is if two or more persons conspire to overthrow or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof. Those are just a few words from a longer definition. But it's such a serious crime different from but similar to treason, that these were the first seditious conspiracy convictions since 1995, when, as the Associated Press reminds us, and as some of you longtime New Yorkers will remember, an Egyptian cleric, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, and nine followers were convicted in a plot to blow up the United Nations, the FBI building, the two tunnels, and a bridge linking New York and New Jersey. That from the AP. The difference, of course... The Sheikh and his followers were stopped in advance. January 6th actually happened. As the Washington Post reports today, Rhodes and his co-defendants were the first accused of seditious conspiracy and to be convicted on any conspiracy charges in the massive January 6th investigation. He is the highest profile figure to face trial in connection with rioting by what the Post calls angry Trump supporters who injured scores of officers, ransacked offices, and forced lawmakers to evacuate the U.S. Capitol. So let's talk about what this means, the legal implications for Trump himself. I know you're asking yourself that already. And more now with Devlin Barrett, who covers national security and law enforcement for The Washington Post. Thanks for coming on after a really historic verdict. Uh, Devlin, welcome back to WNYC. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Uh, I feel very old because I covered that 1995 case, and now I'm covering this one. Uh, And some time has passed between those two events. The one casually and derisively referred to as the blind shake, right, back then? Correct. Correct. Uh, So maybe that jogs some more people's memory. Maybe they didn't remember that name, but oh, the blind shake. So can you start with a little more than I just gave on the charge of seditious conspiracy? I understand it originated in the Civil War era. Do you know any of that history? Well, I know the I know the legal use history and the legal use has been pretty fraught um, in sort of modern times, I guess is the way to think of it. I think of it. And that's because, as you read in the charge, um, It's a strange kind of individual or group that might, you know, decide on their own to levy war against the United States. The key part of that code, as it applies to the Oath Keepers, just to be clear, is the is the phrase you read about opposed by force. The, you know, sort of function of the government. Yeah, the authority Um, of the the, government. Right. Exactly. And that is what they were. Those two Oath Keeper leaders were convicted of yesterday. 
And the government, the Justice Department is generally very reluctant to bring seditious conspiracy charges because it's it's almost um, one, if you're going to commit violent acts, there are other laws that are much simpler and, and cleaner in, in prosecutor terms uh, to charge uh, that, that provide essentially the same amount of potential prison time. But in this instance, uh, prosecutors wrestled with the question of bringing seditious conspiracy charges and decided it was appropriate in this case to send a message about how seriously they took January 6th, because again, it was an attack on the basic functions of our government. And if ever there was a case that probably merited a seditious conspiracy charge, it's probably January 6th. Yeah. So let's talk about the distinction between one phrase or another in the law that you just brought up, because that language, that definition under the law of seditious conspiracy is broad enough that it includes conspiring to actually overthrow the government of the United States, or, as you were indicating, merely opposing the authority of the government by force, I guess, in an individual instance. So did the jury basically reach a verdict? Uh, I know all they do is come out and say guilty or not guilty, mm -hmm. but can you interpret from that and from the way the case was tried? Uh, if they um, reached a verdict on how far Rhodes and company planned to take this to overthrow the government by force, because after all, this was a plot to not allow the transfer of power to Joe Biden, uh, on the other hand, they certainly didn't have the weapons to fight the United States Army. Right. And I think I think it is hard to one, I, just as a general observation, having covered a lot of trials, I think jur juries and jurors are incredibly smart. And I feel like every trial I've ever covered, I've learned something from the jurors. In this particular case, the jurors have not spoken to date. And so we, we can't it's hard to know exactly what they were thinking. I do think one thing leaps out at me from the jury verdict, and that is that the top two people on this indictment were convicted of seditious conspiracy, and, and the sort of three lower down individuals um, were not convicted of seditious conspiracy, but, but were convicted of a lesser charge. And to me, that suggests, and, and, and obviously we won't know for certain until some of the jurors decide to speak, if they do decide to speak, but that, to me, suggests that what the jury here is saying is that the leaders of this effort, the leaders of the Oath Keepers, knew what they were doing and knew what they were telling their people to do, but that some of the folks lower down, even some of the more strident folks, one of the people who was acquitted of seditious conspiracy in this case, had not just a sort of angry exchange on the witness stand about her beliefs about the election, but also had a voluminous evidence of what she said in real time about stopping Joe Biden from becoming president. But I take the, the verdict sheet to me suggests that the jury decided that the people lower down the chain here in Oath Keepers were not nearly as culpable as the people who were running and managing Oath Keepers. Yeah, that's really think that's interesting, interesting potential and important. Lesson. And for people who don't know, there were five Oath Keepers on trial here and the two leaders, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, were the ones convicted of uh, seditious conspiracy. Uh, the others were convicted only of the lesser crime of obstructing Congress. Let, let me continue for a minute before we get into Trump and other stuff on this same thread. What does the conviction mean then in the case of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and top associate Kelly Meggs about 
what they found that they actually did to conspire to commit sedition. You understand the question? What did they do? What was the narrative of what they did? Well, I, I think the narrative of what they did is that, that from the day that, the, that Biden was declared the victor of the 2020 election, Stuart Rhodes started telling his people, his, you know, the, the, the members of the Oath Keepers, um, that they should prepare for civil war, that they would have to fight hard to uh, keep Trump in office and that he conspired. I mean, it's, it's the definition of the charge is that he conspired with others um, to create and and put together violence directed at the government. Now, his defense had argued there was no plan to attack the Congress. He never meant for his people to go inside. He never planned to actually uh, overthrow Congress or disrupt Congress. That's just what happened in, in, in the course of the riot. The jury, I, I think the fundamental definition of the verdict is that the jury didn't agree with that. The jury, the jury felt he did conspire and the jury found he did have some type of plan uh, to create uh, violence and chaos. I guess if you say prepare for civil war, <laughs> that's a little bit in, of an indication. And here, yeah, here's, right. Yo, go ahead. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that? Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I, I think the Oath Keepers are sort of a fascinating arc in, in extremism because they talk they have talked apocalyptically for a very long time. For instance, leading up to the 2016 election, Stuart Rhodes was saying things like, there will be civil war when Hillary Clinton wins the White House. Uh. Um, and obviously that didn't come to pass in, in either for form of the sentence. But I think what you see in January 6th is you see a years-long culmination of just apocalyptic rhetoric that his own followers took seriously. And here's a short clip of tape of Stuart Rhodes that was used at the trial. He's speaking here after January 6th, praising what rioters did there and expressing one regret. Listen. But it also showed the people that we got a spirit of resistance. My only regret is they should have brought rioters. And I know that was a little off mic, so if you couldn't hear that well, folks, the, the copy there was... It'll also show the people that we've got a spirit of resistance. My only regret, they should have brought rifles. So I guess that was evidence of a plot to overthrow the government or resist authority by force, just, just one that failed? Absolutely. I think one of the most damning, for a lot of these guys, the most damning evidence against them was not so much what they said before January 6th, but what they said after January 6th when you cannot pretend anymore that you're just playing dress up, right? Like you, you, the, a bunch of these people went there and, and engaged in acts. Now, Stuart Rhodes never went into, into the halls of Congress. One of the ways in which this case was a little tricky for prosecutors is that he never set foot inside that building. But what the jury found was that he conspired with others to make that happen, essentially. Yeah. And so where does Trump come in? The question many listeners are probably asking themselves right now. What are the implications for Donald Trump? Or let me ask it this way. Was evidence brought at trial of any ways that Stuart Rhodes conspired with Donald Trump or the Trump-directed Stuart Rhodes? Well, we know a little bit about that. We know that Rhodes tried to, tried to communicate with President Trump during that time period. We know that he had messages that he wanted relayed to President Trump at that time period. 
The evidence presented at trial suggests that Rhodes was ultimately unsuccessful in getting those messages through um, to President Trump. And part of the dynamic, it's, it's a little complicated, but part of the dynamic between Trump and the Oath Keepers was the Oath Keepers spent months trying to get the president to invoke the Insurrection Act and then somehow deputize the Oath Keepers to be a, a essentially a, a government-sponsored militia. Now, that may sound crazy, and I think realistically it, it, is, it is a little crazy, but that was what the Oath Keepers were arguing for and hoped to accomplish. So when, when you played that clip about bringing rifles, you know, they had rifles stashed in a hotel in Arlington, and the theory of bringing those weapons nearby was that if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act and they became, you know, sort of Trump's personal, you know, guard or whatever, uh, that those weapons would then be brought out. Um, none of that happened, obviously, but it's it's almost, you know, not when Trump did not take that step, you know, the Oath Keepers went ahead on their own, clearly. Vicki in Tudor City in Manhattan. You're on WNYC with Devlin Barrett from The Washington Post. Hello. Oh, good morning. Thank you very much. I just wondered um, if uh, Mr. Barrett would hazard a guess on when the sentencing might take place especially for Mr. Rhodes. And then, of course, my question was um, if he could hazard a guess uh, uh, of whether or not these charges might might be levied against um, the former president. And I'll yeah. take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. And we'll talk more about the implications for Trump as we go. What about sentencing for Stuart Rhodes or any of them? So I believe sentencing should come in a few months. Um, that sentencing, I, I will tell you, they send sentencing dates uh, after verdicts, and they often end up moving around a bit. Um, I, my understanding, as as best we can tell right now, is that he faces in the ballpark of five to seven years in prison uh, based on the sent, a rough look at the sentencing guidelines. Um, and as far as going, I, I will say this, as far as if you think about a prosecution and an investigation, prosecutors tend to work what they call up the ladder, meaning you start with the small fish and then work to the higher and then investigate up the higher uh, levels of responsibility. Stuart Rhodes is the is the most high profile and high level person uh, convicted over January 6th. And I think the verdict is, is a big win for the Justice Department. It's a big win for uh, the more aggressive uh, approach to, to prosecuting and investigating January 6th. And it does suggest that there are winnable cases to make against people who were not at the Capitol that day. Um, how much higher that goes past Stuart Rhodes is, is I think, very hard to say. Like I, like I mentioned, um, the evidence at trial suggests that Rhodes tried to coordinate with the president and was unsuccessful. That would not be great evidence uh, for a prosecution of President Trump related to January 6th. But that doesn't mean that's the only evidence prosecutors have or that's the only witnesses they will have. Right. Um, but, so, but continuing down that track, uh, mm -hmm. the Washington Post article on the verdict by your colleagues, uh, Spencer Shu, Tom Jackman and Rachel Weiner, says um, – the verdict in Rhodes's case likely will be taken as a bellwether for two remaining January 6th seditious conspiracy trials set for December against five other Oath Keepers and, here's the important part, I think, leaders of the Proud Boys, 
including the longtime chairman, Henry Enrique Tario. Both Rhodes and Tario are highly visible leaders of the alt-right or far-right anti-government movements and were highlighted at hearings probing the attack earlier this year by the House January 6th committee. And, and what I've heard commentators say on television since the verdict came in yesterday is that you think this was something. Wait till you see the trial of the Proud Boys leader and the evidence that's going to come up at that trial about coordination with Trump and his people. You think? So <clears throat> I do think that Proud Boys trial is going to be very important. We are we are in sort of the thick of a period of trials related to January 6th that are very important. Um, this is the first verdict we've gotten from that batch of cases. And, and I think it does, uh, if... If you're one of the lawyers for the Proud Boys, I think you have to be very alarmed that, you know, the jury convicted every defendant in the in the Oath Keepers case of something. Um, and I do think that the Proud Boys trial has at least the potential to implicate people above the Proud Boys. But I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't assume that that means there are more charges definitely coming out of that trial. I think that's a thing that's not really knowable yet. Right. But I, the, what I was taking from, from the TV commentary was that the Proud Boys were more coordinated with Trump world than the Oath Keepers were. And I think some things came out at the January 6th hearings. Um, was it that White House assistant, the, um, I forget her name, um, Hutchinson, was Cassidy it? The, Hutchinson, yeah. The, the aide to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows who is all over this whole thing, Mark Meadows, saying something about contacting the Proud Boys and Roger Stone. I forget the exact quote, but there, but there seems to be potentially, I guess is, this is what the evidence right. is going to show or not, a more direct line from the leaders of the Proud Boys, maybe through Roger Stone, to Mark Meadows and Donald Trump uh, at another level from the Oath Keepers. It, it's certainly possible. And Stone has a long relationship with the Proud Boys, uh, but Stone also had a pretty significant relationship with the Oath Keepers, too. Um, and Stone, obviously, though he runs in and out of favor with Trump from time to time, uh, Stone has a long, long relationship with Trump. So that is certainly possible. And that's certainly something investigators have spent more than a year investigating. Um, but again, I, I don't want to predict uh, too much uh, based on what we, what we haven't seen yet. Jennifer in East Harlem, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jennifer. Good morning, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. You know, I wanted just to raise the point that I know that Rhodes, uh, as well as Kavanaugh, as well as Vance uh, of, of the Hill, Hilly Billy or Hillbilly Elegy. J.D. Vance, grad- the Trumpy uh, senator-elect from Ohio. The- uh-huh. Yes, who previously obviously was very anti-Trump until it no longer served yeah. his purpose. And, and, and Brett, I, I'm curious. Ka- and Brett Kavanaugh, you say. Go ahead. Were. Yes, on, on the basis that obviously Yale is not, is not, if it's not the best law school, you know, ranking wise, uh, it's certainly one of the top three. And, you know, you're talking about individuals who are coming out with and have done things that are so preposterous and so damaging to our democracy, um, you know, you really have to wonder, considering these are law schools that are the most prestigious, are supposed to be bastions of progressive liberal thought, where is this coming from? It's deeply, deeply disturbing. Well, that that's interesting that they all came out of, of Yale Law School. But Jennifer, I mean, 
if you went down a list, I'm just guessing here, but I imagine if you went down a list of all the prominent people who've come out of Yale Law School, you would find that these three are in a small minority. And I agree. People who are more Ryan, progressive in their politics, you know. And there's a difference also between Brett Kavanaugh and Stuart Rhodes, we should say, right? No question about it. I'm only raising the issue that considering the prestige of their educations and such, one has to be that much more just amazed that these individuals have, have come out with and done the kinds of things that they have done, consider their, considering their power and positioning, and certainly the elitism of their academic and, and professional training. Interesting observation, Jennifer. Thank you. <laughs> Devlin, any thought on that? Um, look, I, I think one of the things that's incredible about this case is, is Stuart's, Stuart Rhodes' professional history. He was a congressional aide briefly. He went to Yale Law School. He served in the U.S. military. And he ended up leading uh, a group of people who tried to undo an American election. That, that, is, that is just an incredible arc of, of, of one person's life. Um, and it and I think I think to be honest, I think the jury felt. I wouldn't surprise me if the jury viewed him particularly uh, more skeptically because he knew better than most what these institutions are. He served in a lot of important institutions in America, and yet he still tried to destroy one. Devlin Barrett, who covers national security and law enforcement for the Washington Post. More to come. Obviously, thank you for coming on and explaining so much today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.